Well, tonight is going to be fun because you are going to become biblical theologians for an evening. We're going to take a theme and we're going to trace it through Scripture and look at how it develops because it's really important in order to understand where God's future lies. We have to understand where God's past lies and and what He's done for His people. So... And we're going to start with a section from the reading this week, page 130 in Surprised by Hope. As N.T. Wright was talking about in this chapter, he he talked about this idea. And we'll we'll talk about this word, especially probably in two weeks, but the parousia of Jesus. And some people think that means second coming, but, but it really means presence or... Arrival. So whenever Jesus talks about his presence or his arrival, he's talking about it within the context of the the Hebrew Bible, within the context of first century Judaism. And so we have to learn to um, put ourselves into the world of Jesus somewhat before we start reading all these end times passages, which is why we're going to do what we're going to do tonight. A lot of people begin their study of the end times with the New Testament and then read that back into the Old Testament. And that um, could not be more backwards. You have to begin and get on the same playing field so that when Jesus does start speaking about his parousia, his return, his arrival, his presence, then we have some idea and some context. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses, because that's foundational to everything. That's the foundation of, of the Jewish and the Christian faith. Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's where God lays out his entire plan and even makes allowances for when his people break that plan, what would happen. Then hopefully next week we're going to look at the prophets because the prophets, basically the sole purpose of the prophets was to point Israel back to the Torah time and time and time again. And then the week after that, We'll wrap up any Old Testament that we haven't looked at, and specifically, uh, if we haven't talked about Daniel and Zechariah, the apocalyptic writings, we'll introduce that, and then we'll look at the New Testament, and how the New Testament interprets the Old and plays it out. So, turn 130 in Surprised by Hope. I want to read, this is um, about seven lines down from the top of the page. It begins with the sentence, the Jewish storyline. And N.T. Wright in this section was talking about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and how Jesus spoke into the Old Testament. He says, the Jewish storyline in question was, of course, the story of the day of the Lord. And we'll talk about day of the Lord. That's probably next week more. The day of Yahweh. The day when Yahweh would defeat all Israel's enemies and rescue his people once and for all. Paul and the other writers regularly refer to the day of the Lord. And now, of course, they mean it in a Christian sense. The Lord here is Jesus himself. In this sense, and in this sense only, there's a solid Jewish background for the Christian doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. Of course, there could be nothing stronger because pre-Christian Judaism, including the disciples during Jesus' lifetime, never envisaged the death of the Messiah. That's why they never thought about his resurrection, let alone an interim period between such events and the final consummation during which he would be installed as the world's true Lord while still waiting for that sovereign rule to take full effect. What happens, it seems, is this. 
The early Christians had lived within and breathed and prayed that old Jewish storyline. In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, shocking and unexpected though they were, they grasped the fact that in this way, Israel's God had indeed done what he'd always intended, though it hadn't looked like what they thought it would. Through this, they came to see Jesus as Israel's Messiah was already the world's true Lord and that his secret presence by his spirit in the present time was only a hint of what was still to come when he would finally be revealed as the one whose power would trump all other powers, both earthly and heavenly. The Jesus story thus created a radical intensification and transformation from within the Jewish story. And the language that results in describing the Jesus event that is yet to come is the language that says, in relation to the future, Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. And he goes on in this chapter, which we'll explore in the coming weeks, to talk about how the New Testament authors expanded that idea that Jesus, the Christ event, and by that meaning everything, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, that fulfilled the hopes of the Old Testament in a way that no one imagined, but that looking back makes perfect sense, with hindsight being 2020 in this case. And that then the proclamation from then on was Jesus, not Caesar, is the true king of the Lord, and king of the world, Lord of lords. And he's the one who reigns, he's the one who rules, and he's the one whose kingdom is expanding, and that's where we find ourselves. Um, and so New Testament theology takes Old Testament concepts and filters them through the person of Jesus, because the entire New Testament centers around him. So what we're going to look at tonight then, we're going to look at that old story, that, that, uh, the drama of God's calling for his people and, and his promise of the Messiah and everything like that. And so then that will set us up for what's coming in the next few weeks. So that's where we're headed. Before we get any further, would somebody please open us with a word of prayer? Okay, this week, like I said last week, you will need your Bible. So open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Those of you that took Bible for the rest of us already, you know that Genesis 1 through 11 is the preface to the Bible. It's the beginning. It sets up everything that comes after it. Those of you who haven't taken Bible for the rest of us, you can take it in the comfort of your own home with the new Bible for the rest of us DVD. Yeah, shameless plug. Oh yeah, that's the course. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 sets up everything that comes after. And everything that comes after Genesis 1 through 11 is about God's covenant with Israel and then his new covenant through Jesus. So, all of the questions that people bring to Genesis, a lot of them are valid and, and they're great questions, but they're questions that a lot of times Genesis just doesn't care to answer. <coughs> One of those questions is the origin of, of evil, where it came from. Where, Genesis just, everything's good in chapter 2, and then immediately, but the serpent was more crafty than any. All of a sudden, the serpent's there. And we don't know why, we don't know who he is, we won't find out who he is or what he's doing for a while throughout the Old Testament. And even it's until the final book, the New Testament, Revelation, that we kind of get a clear picture of just who he is and just what he was doing. But what we do have in Genesis 3 is what theologians call the fall. If you have an NIV Bible, it probably says it right above chapter 3, the fall of man. And the fall refers to 
God created humanity, created the world, created humanity as the crowning point of creation. And the intention, based on the language that's used and the way Genesis 1 and 2 are structured, is that God was creating, and this would have been resonant in the minds of the people, His cosmic temple, the universe, where He would reign and rule and be worshipped. And in ancient temples, you would build it, you would have a seven-day or six-day building, installing, commemorating, and, and sort of grand opening of the temple. And on the sixth day, you would put in and install the image of the God that the temple was built to. And on the seventh day would be a day of rest and reflection and prayer and worship and all this stuff. This is how temples worked in the ancient world. So when you read Genesis 1, you're reading a very, um, you're reading an account of God building and creating his true temple, which is the universe, not a temple made by human hands, and installing not an image of himself, but a living image of God, man and woman, in his temple. Well, everything's great. He, he puts the man and puts the woman in the garden. Uh, he, he tells them to work it and take care of it, I think, if certain translations have it that way. But the words he uses in Hebrew are to guard and keep. And then he gives them the mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. So there's already in the beginning this, this idea that this world that God is sending man into to rule over and to reign over, there's going to be a conflict that's going to come up. And man is going to have to, man and woman, are going to have to, uh, to subdue the earth. Not just fill it, but fill it and subdue it. And they're going to have to guard and keep God's presence. Those are the two words that the priests of the tabernacle, it describes their actions, guarding and keeping the tabernacle. Same words, so the first readers of Genesis who were Israel at the base of Mount Sinai receiving the covenant, Moses coming down and giving it, they would have immediately picked up on all of these themes. Well, what we find out is the first man and woman don't do what God had commissioned them to do. They don't rule, they don't have dominion, they don't subdue, they actually get subdued by the very wild animals and beasts of the field that they were sent to have dominion over, one of those, the serpent, ends up taking their dominion from them. Actually, not even taking it. They give their dominion to the serpent. By giving in, by rebelling against God and listening to the voice of the serpent, humanity relinquishes their right to reign and to rule. And they forfeit their fellowship with God in the garden, which is why God has to cast them out and set up an angel, a seraphim with a sword that, that keeps humanity from God's presence. Now, there's, that in and of itself is a whole study that we could do, but what I want us to look at is in chapter 3, when God shows up on the scene after, immediately after man and woman have tasted of the fruit, have eaten. And by the way, the text says in verse 6, Eve gave it to her husband who was with her. So the idea that Satan came to Eve alone and then later she got Adam to sin isn't true. They were both there. Adam was the one that was supposed to guard and keep. If anything, he says nothing. And so they're both implicated, which is why in the New Testament, Paul would talk about Adam being the one through whom sin came into the world, even though technically some people have said, well, Eve was the first one to ate it. No, they were both guilty right there at the same time. They both fell. God pronounces the effects of this action and the ramifications it would have throughout history and throughout the world. And in chapter 3, verse 14, first person that he talks to is the serpent. 
God's uh, verse 14, Genesis 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the word for crush is the exact same word for strike. NIV, I don't know why they made that two different words, but it's the same word. He will crush your head, you will crush his heel. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Same thing. Well, what you have here is this initial, what theologians call this, the proto, which means first, evangelion, which means gospel. They call the proto-evangelion. This is the first promise of the good news in the Bible. What it promises is there will one day come, you have the woman and the serpent. And at some point, the woman will give birth to, and NIV says offspring, but the word used there is seed. It's the Hebrew word seed. Every time you see offspring in the Old Testament, it's the word seed, zerah, in Hebrew. It's a collective singular plural, like we talked about, like sheep or fish. It can be one or many. Well, the promise is that the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will one day crush the head of the serpent. And crushing of the head is, is, is the way you'd say in ancient Hebrew, utterly destroy. That's how you wipe, kill, kill somebody, wipe them out, totally destroy them. But in the process of crushing the serpent's head, this seed of the woman, his heel would be struck. And that would be a way of referring to, to a, a wound that's not mortal, but it is a wound nonetheless. So right at the very beginning, the idea is that, that the first promise that what God's going to do, the first eschatological prophecy is, will involve crushing the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman, not God. God's not going to crush the head of the serpent. The woman's offspring will do that. And at this point, that's all we get in the text. And it moves on to talk to the woman and then to the man. And so we just have to kind of hold that, that the beginning of the Torah, God's promise, what he's going to do, his plan, is going to involve crushing the head of the serpent. And it's going to come through the seed of the woman. Flip forward then to Genesis 12. Let's get to the beginning of the Bible proper. So the first promise, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Then in Genesis 12, we get another piece. We get another bit to what God's doing. God is unfolding his plan. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord God had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So now we have this calling of Abram. This, this, we don't know why God called Abram. It never says. It doesn't give us anything about Abram's character. We don't have any idea. There's all kinds of uh, ancient Jewish legends and even Christian legends, people trying to fill in the blanks that the Bible leaves. 
All we know is the Bible, God appears to one of the descendants of Noah, who was a descendant of the woman. So this is that seed of the woman. He appears and says, hey, you follow me. And if you do this, I will do certain things for you. And he lists six specific things that he's going to do. What's the first one? I will make you into a great nation. What's the second one? I will bless you. What's the third? You will be a blessing? Is that the second one? No, I will make your name great. Children in the future will sing a song about you and dance and wave their arms around. Father Abraham, anybody? Did you ever have to sing that growing up? <laughs> you will be a blessing, number four. You will be a blessing. I will bless you and those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Yep. Number five, I will bless the ones blessing you. Curse those that curse you. And the flip side, I will curse ones cursing you. This is a very important passage and we're going to stick around it for a minute. What's the sixth one, the final one that they all lead up to? Through you, all the nations or people will be blessed. Through This is the covenant that God makes with Abram. This is what God's going to base all of his covenant promises on in the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. On this promise to Abram. And the promise has very specific parts to it. He's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great. He's going to Make him into a blessing. You'll be a blessing. God's going to protect him. And he's going to show his protection to him by cursing those who would curse him and blessing those who would bless him. So that all the nations will be blessed through you. So now, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's God's plan. This will come through the seed of the woman who now we get narrowed down to Abram. And God's going to use Abram out of all the people in the world, all the offspring of the woman that he could have picked. He picked Abram. And he's going to do this. This is the covenant that he's going to make. Some people call this the Abrahamic covenant. Well, three chapters over. Turn to Genesis 15. This is a good many years later. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, O oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. That was one of his servants, not one of his children because he didn't have any. And Abram said, You've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Another part of this covenant, God's revealing how this is going to happen. This isn't going to happen through Abram having adopting a servant as his heir, because if you die childless, then your estate would pass on to whoever you deemed. This covenant is going to involve a son. A son from Abram's own line, his own body, an an offspring of Abram. In fact, it will be referred to as the seed of Abram. That word Zerah, the offspring of Abram. And then God makes this covenant with him, and he adds another part to it. He says, verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, and then he asked for these animals. And this, the thing that happens after this, Abram, we talk about this in uh, Imitation of the Old Testament. Abram takes the animals. God says, he, he, God doesn't even say it. He just cuts them in half. He arranges them in a line. And then at, when the darkness falls, there's this vision of a smoking fire pot. And it walks between these cut up pieces of the animal. And it says, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. God makes this covenant, and it's going to involve not just a son, but also <coughs> the land, land of Canaan. Abram didn't have to do anything. Yeah, God's the one who walks through in that in, in that ceremony. God is basically the way that covenant, the word, the verb to make a covenant in Hebrew that your Bible says God made a covenant. It's in Hebrew, it's literally you to cut a covenant. You don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. Because a covenant almost always involved some type of sacrifice, and you would cut that animal up. And what you were doing by walking between the cut pieces of the animal is saying, if I break my end of this bargain, or if I go back on my end of this bargain, may what's done to the animals be done to me. And you would walk through, and you would walk through the blood path where the blood had pooled between them, and you would get the blood on your feet or your robe, the fringe of your garment or something. It's basically like saying, I'm invoking this curse on myself if I break my end of the bargain. That's how you made a serious deal. That's what a covenant was. So the Abrahamic covenant is going to, the promise God makes to Abraham I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you and your offspring, your descendants, your seed, this land. The land right now that is owned by, and he lists those people. Now, what God had said earlier, verse 13, when he says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. And that happens to Israel in the next book of the Bible, the Exodus. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, Egypt, and afterward they will come out with great possessions, which they did. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. So the promise now given to Abram is extended to his descendants. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
In other words, what God says is, I'm giving you this land, but I'm not giving it to you now. Because right now, it belongs to people who are not deserving of judgment at this point. If God were to give Abram the land at that point, he would be doing it, he would be, he would be doing it at the expense of all of the peoples that were in the land that Abram was living with and, and in community with. God says, in four generations, the sin of the Amorites, these people that you're in, these people that inhabit Canaan, all of the Jebusites, Perizzites, Hittites, all these people, their sin will have reached its full measure. At that point, your descendants entering the land will be my judgment on these people when it's gone as far as it can go. And so what you see in this sets up the rest of the Torah and the descriptions of Israel entering this land of Canaan because a lot of people say, wait a minute, Israel just came in the land and they stole it from these people and they drove them out and they killed them and they took their houses and their lands and everything. If you don't know chapter 15, if you don't know the basis of the covenant, then it's, yeah, it seems like God's just pillaging and looting. But it, with Genesis 15, and we'll see elsewhere as it develops, what you find is Israel, instead of using water to judge the earth like he did back in chapters 6 through 9 with the flood, when humanity's sin had reached a measure that was beyond redemption, God's using Israel as his means of judgment. And it's only once in Israel's history at this moment. It's, it's never a command to go out and... God doesn't endorse Israel's wars in the Old Testament willy-nilly. In fact, many times he allows them to get beat because they assume that he's fighting on their side. Only these specific peoples that he commands them to go in and to wipe out from the land do they do that. And we'll see that unfold in just a second. But what's important to realize is that this covenant's made in chapters 12 and 15 with Abram and his seed. It involves all of these promises, and it's going to come through a son, and it's going to involve giving them the land of Canaan. All right? That's the basis for the covenant. Well, in Genesis 26, flip forward a few chapters. Abram has a son. He has two sons. The first one's illegitimate because he tries to, actually Sarah says, hey, let's help God out. You know, I, I can't have a child, but maybe if I give you my maidservant, you can have a child with her, and then it'll be our child because that was an ancient Near East law that it, it was, you could do that if you had a maidservant. Well, that doesn't work. Eventually, though, they, he does have a son, Isaac, miraculously. And chapter 26, Isaac's living in the land of Canaan. And verse, chapter 26, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So what we have now is this covenant is confirmed. The Abrahamic covenant is confirmed through Isaac. It's passed on. Two chapters over, chapter 28. Isaac has two sons as well. First one, 
ends up not being the one that this covenant promise goes to. And you can read the whole drama of Jacob and Esau. But the second one, Jacob, is who God confirms this promise through. Jacob ends up having to flee, ends up having to leave his family because him and his brother and, and their uh, conflict and don't have nearly enough time to get into it. Jacob's the major character in Genesis other than Abraham. But Jacob leaves. He has to flee so that he doesn't get killed by his brother who's angry because he had stolen his birthright. And chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob leaves. He leaves Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. That's the land of his ancestors, his relatives. That's Abram's land where he came down from. It's up in the north. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Jacob wakes up. He says, wow, the Lord's been in this place. So he names it Bethel, which means house of God. And then Jacob says, okay, if you get me back here in one piece, blessed, then I'll obey you. In other words, because he had a dream, so he didn't know whether to, you know, it's kind of when you have a dream, you think it's significant. So at this point, Jacob is far from being a hero. He's a swindler, and, and he's unsure about God, and just seems hardly like someone who God would confirm this covenant promise through. But God does. And so what we find out is when Jacob comes back into that place, God keeps all his promises, and God changes Jacob's name. And so Jacob becomes Israel. So before Israel was anything else in the Bible, before it was a nation, before it was a people, it was a person. Israel was an individual. The first time Israel's mentioned, it's one person. Okay, that'll play a big part in how you think about things like Israel today or Israel in Jesus' time, or all of these things, is Israel in the Bible does not always mean the nation of Israel. In fact, it didn't originally mean the nation of Israel. It meant Jacob, who was the descendant of Isaac, Abraham. Okay? So, that rule, or the covenant, is passed on to Jacob. Then the rest of Genesis is the story of Jacob and his brothers, um, excuse me, Jacob and his sons, and then one of those sons, Joseph, Joseph and his brothers. Well, Jacob has, Israel has 12 sons. And those 12 sons go on to become the ancestors of what would become the tribes of Israel. Well, on his deathbed, in chapter 49, flipping to the end of Genesis, Jacob is, is giving a blessing over his sons. And blessing is a loose term because some of them don't get blessed. It seems more like a curse than a blessing. What he's doing is pronouncing a prophetic almost like the destiny of each one. He is speaking what will happen down the road to them as they become tribes and people and nations. And in chapter 49, verse 8, he speaks to Judah. 
And he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And some translations differ there. There's something about Shiloh, or, or it's, it's this Hebrew word that translators aren't quite sure what to do with, but the most, or as good as any suggestion is um, how the NIV has it is until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his what we see in this passage is within this covenant that's been passed on to Jacob to the nation of Israel now it's going to involve a ruler the scepter is the is a symbol of ruling and authority and it's going to be a ruler of the nations. It's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Someone's going to come as part of this covenant, as part of this plan that God's doing, that He started with the seed of the woman, saying one of your offspring or, or your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. Then through one of those offspring, Abram, he called and said, I'm going to do this thing with you and make you into a great people. I'm going to do all this in order that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And then through his dealings with Abram, he confirmed that to his son Isaac and to Jacob. And in his dealings with Jacob, he basically confirmed that it would come through Jacob as a people, as a nation. And part of that would involve a ruler coming out of Jacob and specifically from Judah. And so the end goal will be a ruler out of Israel, specifically from the line of Judah, will eventually rule all of the nations as the people or God's representative, as God on earth. His, his, at this point, it just says ruler. We don't get a clear picture yet. So that's the one promise that God's going to do. Now, Remember, though, he made a big deal with Abram about this would involve land. Because at that point, if you didn't have land, you didn't have anywhere to stake your claim. You didn't have anywhere to, to, to establish your family line. You, you were a wanderer. And so God promised Abram that he would give the land to his people. Well, if you flip in Exodus now. So Genesis ends with Israel as a nation really consisting of about 70 or 72 people in Egypt living together as a little family, commune, group, society. All of the events that people know about happen in the first 15 or so chapters in Exodus, which is all the, all the Charlton Heston events, um, or the Prince of Egypt events, if you're a younger generation. Well, in Exodus 19, God assembles Israel, who's now a nation, a, a big nation, They've become a great nation. They've been blessed. And through them, the name of Abram has been great. And we're seeing how these things are happening. The ones who blessed them, he blessed. The ones who cursed them, he cursed with the plagues of Egypt. All these things are happening. And in fact, a number of Egyptians leave Egypt with Israel because they say, hey, God's on your side. We're going with you. So you see this already starting to happen. Well, 
God makes this covenant again, but this time it's a specific uh, arrangement with this nation. All right. With Abram, he made a promise, and that promise would happen through this nation and God entering into a what's called a suzerainty covenant. And I'm going to write this out because it's an important word. Suzerainty covenant. Sometimes you'll just see it referred to as a suzerain covenant. Suzerain is just the ancient Near East word for king or ruler. It's, it's, it's a powerful warlord in the ancient world. And when a powerful warlord would liberate or free a people or do something benevolent for a people, he would enter into a covenant with that people. And by that, he would basically say, and, and we have these. We, these have been found. If you have Archaeology Study Bible, it tells you all about the different um, covenants that they found, suzerain covenants throughout the ancient world. But they all basically went like this. I am the great king such and such. I protected you from your enemies and brought you peace and prosperity and wealth and civilization and all these things I've done for you. So there was like this historical prologue of, to start the covenant. Therefore, you are going to do some things for me. If you keep my commandments, if you keep my laws, if you pay me taxes, if you say prayers to your gods on my behalf, if you do all of these things, then I'll bless you. I'll give you food. I'll give you water. I'll give you protection from your enemies. I'll make, I'll, I will make your life wonderful. But if you don't keep these commands that I'm giving you, if you don't pay your taxes, if you don't say your prayers to your gods for me, if you rebel against me and try to team up with another suzerain, I will utterly destroy you. I will make your life miserable. I will wipe you from the face of the earth. Your name will be a curse among everyone, etc., etc., etc. And it will go on and on and on. Just really, really bad stuff. Then to confirm that covenant, the animal would be cut, the piece is set, both parties walk through it, saying, the suzerain, I'll do the things I said I'll do. The vassal, who is the party that's being made the covenant with, will do the things that we promised to do. Both parties walk through. Then the covenant, all of that that had taken place, would be written out on two tablets. One would go back with the suzerain to his land and would be put in the temple of his god. One would stay with the vassal people in their land and be put in the temple of their god as a witness that the gods are their witness that they will keep this agreement. And if any of them, if either side breaks this agreement, then all of those curses and all of those covenant things are going to happen. Okay? That's the context into which God gives the covenant with Israel. This covenant, this national suzerain covenant. Only God's saying, instead of a vassal king who's freed you from local bandits or helped you with a season of harvest, I am the king, I am the suzerain, I am the God, and you'll remain faithful to me. And he makes this covenant with them. So all of Exodus 19, 20, through most of the rest of the book, all of these laws and stipulations, what we know of as the Torah or the Old Covenant, is God's covenant with Israel. He's saying, and, and, and what's really cool is, and if, like I said, I mentioned the Archaeology Study Bible just because it's the only study Bible I know that has all of this information spelled out in its notes. The format that God uses is set up just like ancient Near East suzerain covenants. 
it's, it takes the same form. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy follows the pattern of one of these covenants because Deuteronomy was Moses reiterating the covenant that God had made with the first generation out of Egypt to the generation after them before they entered the land. And so if you read through that, it's a whole area of study. It's fantastic and it's just extremely interesting of how it works, but it explains a lot of what makes the Old Testament and the Torah specifically so weird and arcane and foreign. All these laws that they have to keep as a people and all these, why is God saying he's going to send all these blessings and all these curses and this and that? He was doing it in a way that they would have understood. Israel was entering into an exclusive, binding, conditional covenant. Not an unconditional promise like God had made to Abram. God's promise he made to Abram, remember, he was the only one who walked through that path. He was the only one who said, I'll keep my end of the bargain. Abram didn't have to do anything. All he did was believe God. Not like this, but now, in order to accomplish this, God makes a specific covenant with the nation of Israel. We see it in Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountains, Mount Sinai, and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. You might catch that if then. If you obey me, then you will be my treasured possession. All right, now this, this isn't talking about salvation, going to heaven or hell or any of that. This is Israel as a nation. If you follow me, I will, will, will lift you up above all the nations of the world. I will, it's, it's suzerain language. I will bless you beyond anything you can imagine. But unlike the Abrahamic promise, this is conditional. All of the things that God's promising to do for this nation of Israel are contingent upon them keeping their end of the bargain. Keep reading. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is verse 5, then out of all the nations will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the purpose to take Israel and make this special arrangement with them was so that they would become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They would be different, they would be peculiar, and they would be the intercessor between the nations of the world and God. That's what the priest did. The priest stood between the people and God. Israel, as a nation, that was their calling. That's what they were chosen for. So any discussion of Israel as God's chosen nation, whether it's today in modern Israel or whether it's in the Bible or whatever, it is about they were chosen to be the part of the plan that brings forth these promises. They were chosen to be the means through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. They were chosen to be the priest, the light to the Gentiles. They were chosen to reach the world for God. That's the chosenness. And God specifically is going to go on and state, not because of anything special about you, Israel, but because of a promise I made to Abraham. And he'll repeat that over and over and over. Uh, let's look at Look at Exodus, oh, just keep going in that same chapter, verse 7. So, 
Moses goes back. Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. So the people agreed. This is the beginning of making this covenant. You agree? Good. Now let's seal this deal. Moses, verse 15, tells the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. In other words, this covenant that God's going to make, he's going to show up and it's going to be something amazing. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud covered the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. These are elements that will appear throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Then, oh, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in a fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So this is not an everyday thing. This was God showing up, making his covenant with his people. God then issues the covenant, and we, he begins with what we know of as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of this covenant agreement that God's making, but they aren't the full covenant. The Ten Commandments are, here's, here's the basic overall what you have to do. And then the rest of Exodus and most of Leviticus and all of Deuteronomy is, now let me just spell out what that looks like specifically. And specifically 613 different ways that that looks. All right, so, so, but the, the Ten Commandments were the beginning of the covenant between Israel the nation and God the rescuing king who had delivered them. And, and that's why God always says this phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Or I am the Lord who God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's always hearkening back to this covenant. This is the basis upon which everything that God's doing with Israel rests. Look at chapter 24. God spells it out in the next three chapters. 20, 21, 22, 23. <coughs> Then in 24, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words, this is after all these rules and laws and stuff he'd given him, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is all of this that he had recorded, and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Three times Israel as a nation promised they will obey this covenant that God's made with them. Moses, verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. So now the blood has covered the altar which is where God, people meet with God, where the sacrifices are accepted. The bloods cover the altar. The blood sprinkles on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then down in verse 11, they saw God and they ate and they drank. This is proto-communion. This is early, early. This is a covenant ceremony. This explains what Jesus was doing in the upper room. When he says this is the blood of the new covenant, 
that I'm making with you. And they eat and drink. So the covenant is a suzerainty covenant made with Israel. And it's conditional. So all of the blessings, all of the promises, all of the things that God is saying He's going to do with this nation, this people, Israel, in order to keep this earlier promise that He made to Abram, it's conditional, very much conditional. And that includes this promise of the land that they're going to go into. And we're going to see how He emphasizes that. Look real quick. Flip to Exodus 34. A couple of chapters over. He's going to give more directions on how to worship Him. The whole priest, the sacrificial system, all that stuff. Exodus 34, starting in verse 10. This is all happening at roughly the same time in history. Exodus doesn't spread out over a long period of time like like Genesis does. This is all while Israel's camped around the base of Mount Sinai for about a year. Verse 10, Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before... All, before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Those are uh, pagan worship. Uh, implements. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. All right, so just like a suzerain would make with a vassal, hey, don't go teaming up with any other king because I'm the one who's liberated you. God's doing that, but on a national religious uh, obedience level, saying, hey, don't go after the other gods of these people. Now, remember back in Genesis 15 how God had said to Abram, I'm going to bring your descendants out when the sin of the Amorites is complete. This is what God's preparing to do right now. And he's saying, I'm part of this plan, giving this land to Abram's offspring like I promised, is you're going to go in and you will be my means of judging these specific people, these seven specific people. Not everybody. God never tells them wipe out the Philistines. He never tells them to wipe out the Edomites or any of the other people. He's always specific with who he's sending them against. There's specific people that God is bringing judgment upon. The promise of the land that's given there then is the promise that it would be the land that these seven peoples were living in right now. Israel would drive them out, and they had to drive them out. Otherwise, if they didn't, those peoples, all the things that God was judging those people for, Israel would, would start to do. They'd start worshiping other gods, and that would involve everything from sexual worship orgies to child sacrifice. All of these horrendous, evil things. There's a reason God judges people this harshly, and He only does it, you can count it on one hand in the Bible the number of times He does it, because the stuff they were doing was beyond redemption. At the beginning and at the end of Leviticus 18, God is very specific and says, Listen, I am sending you in to this land as judgment on these people, for doing these kinds of things. You're not to be like those people, and you're not to be like the people that I brought you out from, which is Egypt. You're not to do the things that they do. And in this section, it's all about 
the, 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 the sexual practices that they had had. They had taken the human sexuality and it had, it had become more depraved than anything that we can imagine today. And God gives them examples. Okay, you, know what, you want to know what that means? It means, let me spell it out for you. Don't, and then he gives you the list of, you know, who you can and can't have sex with. He had to spell it out because humans have a propensity to take sex and twist it and turn it. And, and how much can I get away with? And, well, you didn't specifically say this. And you, so he goes through Leviticus 18. Then look in verse 24. Verse 24 through the end of the chapter. And this kind of sums up why God's giving these prohibitions. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. In other words, don't do this because this is the very thing I'm sending you in to judge. They are losing this land because they defiled it through these practices. So don't you go in and do the same thing or you will lose the land. Verse 25, even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from the people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So this promise to Israel could not be any clearer that not just if you break my covenant, but, but specifically if you break my covenant by doing the very things that I sent you in here to judge these people for, you're going to get the same judgment. This promise that God makes to the nation of Israel this entity regarding this land that's a fulfillment of the promise that he made back to Abram is very much conditional on them not doing the things that the people in the land were doing. That's why God was so insistent that they drive them out. Numbers is the transition from the first generation, and, and Numbers is the reason that God, that, that God made them wander for 40 years because initially he said, hey, this is the land I'm giving you, go for it. And the people as a whole said, it's too scary, there's no way, we're not going for it. And God said, all right, fine, you're going to stay here and you're not going to enter the land, your children will enter the land. And there's a lot more to it than that, but it's, it's really interesting. Well, in Numbers 24, or in the chapters surrounding that, Israel is, is, is moving up from out of Egypt, or they've moved up from out of Egypt, they've moved to Mount Sinai, now they're moving north and they're going to enter into the land, Canaan, but they're going to enter into it from the east across the Jordan River. Well, to do that, they have to move through the territories of these peoples, peoples like Moab and Ammon and Edom. And they're opposed along the way by some people. One of the people they're opposed is King Balak, or King Balak. And he sees how numerous Israel is. He sees how they've become a great nation. He sees how they have a great name. God's blessed them, all of this stuff. And he's pretty scared. So he hires a rogue prophet to come and pronounce a curse over them. Little does he know that that won't work because God's already promised those who curse you, I'll curse. So the story of Balaam, he's a prophet of God, and Balaam is a prophet of the Lord. I mean, it, it, the text is very clear. He is a prophet of Yahweh, not some foreign God. And he comes in, and every time he's supposed to speak a curse over the nation, 
to King Balak, he ends up speaking some type of a blessing. And so Balak has him do it like three or four times. Really, here, come look at him from this point of view. Now can you utter a curse over him? No. Okay, let me take you up to a mountain. Now can you utter? And so it's kind of comical. But in Balaam's third, fourth oracle, his, his last, no, second to last, Numbers 24, starting in verse 15. Balaam's looking at the people, Israel, that God's, God's covenant people. And he says, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one who sees, whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So Balaam gets this vision that's very much like the promise originally that Jacob saw way back in Judah. He, he says part of this people, this covenant that God's made with them involves a ruler who will rise up and despite all of the attacks of the enemies, and those are the names that he mentions here, those are the people who are sort of hemmed Israel in at this point. Despite that, there's going to be a ruler who's going to come and have authority over all of them. And he uses the language of ruling, crushing the heads and crushing the foreheads. These are, these are ancient Near East battle motifs. So the idea was that there was going to be a ruler who would come from Israel who would rule over the, these Gentile nations. All right? Then, lastly, the whole book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses gathering all this generation, this generation that had grown up, either they were children when they left Egypt, or they were born during the time after Israel had left Egypt. This whole new generation that didn't see the miracles firsthand, most of them, and weren't really able to enter into the covenant that their fathers and mothers did with God at Mount Sinai. Moses repeats them. He gathers them all together <clears throat> just as they're about to cross over into the land. And he says, let me give you this a second time so you get it, so that you don't do what your parents did. Here's the history. Here's the story. And so he recounts. So Deuteronomy recounts a lot of it. It gives the Ten Commandments again, and it gives them in a slightly different form because he's, re, he's, he's, he's reaffirming the covenant with Israel. And they're accepting it again all over. And what you find is, I'll just give you the verses, that in Deuteronomy 4, in verses 25 through 31, you get this notion that Israel's exile, Israel's once they're in the land and they're settled and they're fine, if they turn to other gods, he will rip them out of that land and send them into exile based on covenant unfaithfulness, based on breaking the covenant. But if after that they turn to God, it's the same thing that he had told the previous generation in Leviticus, then he will bring them back and he will restore them based on covenant faithfulness. So unfaithfulness can annul the covenant, but a renewed faithfulness and humility can restore and repair the covenant. 
You see that in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. You see it in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 11. God goes out of his way to say, I did not pick you because you're anything special. I picked you because you are descendants of Abraham. And my relationship with him is why I've chosen you. Israel's chosen to be a holy people based on this covenant that God made with Abraham. And then Deuteronomy 11, 22 through 24. This is big with, with modern Israel end times enthusiasts. Because there, God gives, we can turn to that one, Deuteronomy 11. eleven twenty two. God says, If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea, or the Mediterranean. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as He promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. Um, this verse is very important because uh, modern proponents, especially dispensationalists, use this as, as uh, they, they point here to basically validate whatever's going on in the Middle East right now. You know, Israel is, is telling Palestinians, hey, you got to get off this land, it's ours. And, and they, you know, bulldoze their houses and they create the settlements and, and all of those. They point to this verse. They say, God gave it to us. And he gave it to us and said, anybody that's, you know, I'm going to drive these nations out. And so for, for modern proponents of that, what's called Zionists, they're, they're using this as the mandate for Israel today, the modern nation, to have the land. So the question then that, that as biblical interpreters would say, well, is this promise here, who was this given to and why was it given? It was given to Israel, the nation, in covenant with God, based on covenant obedience, including all of the sacrifices, all of the priestly, all of that. And it was very much conditional, and it was against the specific peoples, Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, etc. Not just anybody. So whether it applies today, you'd have to make the case in some way that modern whoever, Palestinians or whatever, are the equivalent of ancient Canaanites. Uh, and I don't think that case can be made. But regardless, this is, this is a very important text for a lot of people doing a lot of stuff in Israel. This is also the reason why people, like for instance, why peace talks in the Middle East now are so hard to do because people that are strong line uh, proponents of, of Zionism say, no, you can't have any of Jerusalem. You can't have Gaza. You can't have the West Bank. You can't have any of it. In fact, Israel should have all of the land that stretches from the Euphrates all the way down to Egypt. So all of those countries are really living on Israel's land. There's a reason why peace talks are so hard in the Middle East if you think that this is that guiding principle now. Whereas the other side is saying, we've been here for well over a thousand years and now all of a sudden you're coming back and taking this land from us. And so it gets, it gets really messy. And, and it's something that as Christians, we have to not let proof texting, which is where people throw a bunch of verses out that appear to support their position. 
we have to make sure that that's not the way we operate, that rather we look at the context of passages in their historical redemptive setting and then evaluate modern issues, controversies, end time stuff based on that understanding. And that it'll make a difference on how you see everything. Um, the land, Israel, the people, covenant faithfulness, Jesus, the church, all of that stuff plays a role in it. And the resources that I've listed in your suggested resources section deal in depth with a lot more of this. Chapter 26, verse 16, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You've declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways. You will keep His decrees, commands, and laws and that you will obey Him. And the Lord, so that's their part of the deal. And the Lord has declared this day that you are His people, His treasured possession, as He promised, and that you are to keep all His commands. He's declared that He will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations He has made, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God as He has promised. So that's the, that's the two sides of the covenant. Then, in good old ancient Near East suzerainty format, chapter 28 gives the blessings for obedience. Chapter 28, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow His commands, I will do, and, and all of 28, 1 through 14, those are all the blessings that God would give to Israel. Verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands, and then the whole rest of the chapter, it's almost twice as long, in good old-fashioned suzerainty covenant format, there are some curses on there, and boy are they curses. Um, the, the picture that God paints is one of Him removing all of His favor from Israel and allowing the nations to come in and have their way with them, and what would result, or what would come as a result. And there's some pretty bad stuff in there, famines and sieges and, and you know, people starving so much that they eat their own children and, and just all of this, this horrendous stuff. And the sad thing is we see that happen in Israel's history when Babylon comes and puts them to siege. And then we'll see it again in the New Testament time when Rome comes in and puts Jerusalem to siege again. So <coughs> the blessings and the promises that God made, that's how the Torah ends. That's how Deuteronomy ends and, and what we know of as the historical books begin. But those, that's the promise. That's the covenant. That's the calling of Israel. So, why does God choose the nation of Israel as a nation? Promise the promise He made to Abraham. Yeah. And what's the purpose of Him choosing them? What does He choose them to do? Fulfill all the yeah, to be a holy nation, to be a priest among all the peoples of the earth, because this is his plan. This is God's eschatological goal, is blessing all the nations. And Israel is the means by which he's doing that in the Old Covenant, if they keep his commands. So that's how it sets out. What you see in the historical books is Israel's pretty good at it for a while. So-so. But eventually they completely and utterly reject God. Joshua picks up where Deuteronomy leaves off. Moses dies. Joshua is his successor. Joshua was one of the only two faithful spies who entered the land and checked it out. He was one of two voices that said, hey, let's go take this land. And all the rest said, no, we can't do it. 
And they wanted to actually rebel against and kill Moses. And Joshua and Caleb were the only two faithful ones. Caleb, incidentally, was not an Israelite. Caleb was a Kenizzite. He was one who was not from Israel. He was one who had come into Israel based on obedience to God. So 50% of the generation that left Egypt and entered into Canaan were Gentile, someone who's faithful. His name means dog, by the way. Caleb, Caleb is the Hebrew word for dog. And, and it's funny because dog is a euphemism for Gentile in the Hebrew Bible. So it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty neat. God has a sense of humor. Joshua 21, verse 43. All of those preceding chapters are Israel going into the land, driving the people out, and, and allotting the land to the different tribes. At the end of giving the Levites, the last ones, giving them their lands, verse 43 of Joshua. So the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. This passage seems to imply that all of the promises, I mean, it says it right there, they were all fulfilled. This poses a problem for people because they'll say, well, but wait a minute, for the rest of the time, they're still sort of battling to take certain parts or they don't drive the people fully out or, or you know, what's going on there. Um, and there are a number of ways interpreters have dealt with it. Some have said, well, one, in the Bible, all doesn't mean all, all the time. Uh, it says all the world came to buy grain from Joseph. That just meant everybody. So not, you know, people from Australia coming to buy grain from Joseph or whatever. So this could be, some would say, this is, this is the author of Joshua um, speaking in hyperbole, saying God has done his end of this deal, and he's given us what he promised. But knowing that there's still other stuff that Israel has to do. They still have to drive out certain people, or some people they didn't drive out, some people they end up making treaties with and leaving them there, specifically against what God had said. So... On any interpretation, this verse is one that you have to wrestle with, especially people who push for that, you got to interpret literally, you got to interpret literally. Well, if that's the case, then Israel literally got the land, and then everything after that is them rejecting it, and, and, and so all of these promises then are up in the air because of that. So I'm not, we won't get into too much. I just want to point that verse out because that verse is a problem or for some end times views. And it's one that all views have to understand, Israel's relationship to the land. Then in Judges, flip to the book of Judges, because this is where things take a dark turn. In chapter 1, starting at verse 21, it gives... In Judges, it talks about the, the different tribes and how they went out and, and how they drove out the people that they were supposed to drive out in their lands. But then in verse 21, it, <clears throat> it says, The Benjaminites, however, failed 
to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent out men to spy. The spies saw a man coming from the city. They said, show how to get in. He showed them. They put the city to the sword. They spared the man and his family, just like Rahab back in uh, Joshua. Then he went to the land of the Hittites, and he built a city called it Luz. It's there to this day. So Judges 1 is sort of given this mixed account. Some of the tribes are doing what God's called them to do and driving the people out. Some of the tribes aren't. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. In other words, when they had their chance to drive them out like God told them to, they said, we'd rather use them as slave labor. Bad idea from God's perspective. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal, who remained among them. But they did subject them to forced labor. Again, not following what God had told them to do. Nor did Asher, nor did Naphtali. In other words, it's giving this Israel already is starting to not live up to their end of the bargain. The bargain was, you drive them out. God will do the fighting for you. God will actually says, I'll go before you and drive them out ahead of you. I'll... You don't have to worry about that part. Um, but Israel doesn't do it. Instead, they settle. And so, in chapter 2 of Judges, you read, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim, where they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Um, from here on, verse 10, after that generation had been gathered their fathers, meaning after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, or the gods of the people. So you get this downward spiral of Israel already breaking the covenant. And so we'll pick up next week, we'll look at, basically God is beyond patient with Israel. Um, he gives them generations and generations to turn back even to the point where Israel says, yeah, God, we know you're supposed to be our God, but we want a king because a king looks cool. All the other nations have kings. We want a king too. And God says, I'm your king. And they're like, yeah, but we want one we can see. And, you know. So God allows it. He says, all right, I'll give you a king. You're not going to like it, but I'll give you a king. So then you get the whole drama of Saul and David. Well, from that king, we find out that that is how God's going to keep this promise that he made that a ruler would come out of Israel. And this king is going to be the one to rule over the nations um, from Israel if they keep the covenant. All right. Next week we're going to see God's going to have to send the prophets because Israel is not going to get it. Keep in mind or keep thinking about when it comes to end times, the purpose of God is to bring all of the nations back to Him and to 
in doing so to crush the head of the serpent, to defeat evil. And in that, he called Israel to be the instrument that he would use to begin that process. The question is, what happens when the instrument refuses to be used? What happens when the covenant people break the covenant? What does God do? Next week we'll see that the prophets already, or they show that God already has that taken into account and that he will set up and point towards this new form of a covenant that won't be like a suzerainty covenant. It'll be something different, something entirely unique uh, in the history of the world. So when you're thinking end times, you're thinking eschatology, when you're thinking Israel, when people are pulling out verses from the Old Testament to back up whatever view that they're always keep in mind this story, this narrative, this overall flow, because this is the world that Jesus was operating in, and it's the fulfillment that Jesus came to bring to all of these promises.